Welcome to the St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship Podcast. Today, one of our teaching leaders, Brad Tatko, will be discussing Genesis chapters 30 and 31. St. Louis Young Adults Bible Study Fellowship, or BSF, is currently meeting virtually on Zoom every Monday from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time. For more information and to connect with our class, visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. That's bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Now let's prepare our hearts, open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 30, and join Brett as he shares truths from God's Word. Hey everybody, welcome to BSF. We are taking a look tonight at Genesis 31 and 30 and 31. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for reminding us that you're present with your people. Lord, you were present with Jacob as he traveled to a foreign land. You protected him and you brought him back to the land of Abraham's sojournings. Lord, in the same way, we can trust you to be present with us today. And I ask that you would help us to understand What does that mean? What does that look like? What's the reality of you being present with your people? Open our hearts, open our minds uh, as we open your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, You know, I, I remember a number of years ago, the Super Bowl just happened, and it's famous for advertisements, if not for football. And many years ago, Staples began an advertisement campaign where they introduced the easy button. Red button, you could push it. And the premise of the ads was, wouldn't it be nice if there was an easy button in life? And so they had different scenarios that they put people in, pressing the easy button. A kid in math class who got called on when he was daydreaming. Uh, a surgeon getting ready to perform a difficult procedure that he had never done before, a farmer trying to care for a a raging, bucking bronco. Uh, They all pushed an easy button that was supposed to come into that situation and make it easy. And, of course, Staples was positioning themselves as the easy way to get paper or or something. But I think part of the reason that the advertisement works is that we like the idea of escaping hard situations and the the ability to push an easy button to escape sounds pretty good. And you know, I think that as we as we look at our lives and as we think about what's the role that we want God or, or the Holy Spirit or Jesus to play in our lives, at some level we want them to be an easy button. We want to be able to turn to the Lord uh, seek Jesus, pray to the Holy Spirit, wh- whatever. We want to we want to reach out to God in a time of need and say, God, this situation needs to be easier for me. And we're we're given the promise throughout the pages of Scripture that God will be present with us. And sometimes, you know, I think we feel like, you know, I'm pushing this easy button, God. Why am I not getting a response that I'm expecting? I think we can take a look at Jacob's life and some of the experiences that he had in the land of Padanaram and and understand that God is present with his people. He's with Jacob. He he promised to be with Jacob from the from the day that Jacob uh, left Bethel for his whole journey, but yet many of the things that happened when Jacob was in the the nation, the country of Laban, uh, they weren't easy. 
they were things that we would look at and say, you know, that would seem kind of difficult and challenging. Now, we we can definitely claim the promise of God's presence with us because Jesus speaks of it in the New Testament. At the end of the book of Matthew, he says to his disciples, I am with you even to the end of the age as a part of the Great Commission. We have to keep in mind that there's other promises that God made to Jacob that we can't so easily claim for ourselves. But this one, the presence of God, God's presence with his people, this is one that is true for Jacob. It's true for us. And I think the thing that we can learn about God's presence is that God's presence with his people will result in their good, God's people's good, and his glory. Let's take a look at some of the events of Genesis 30 and Genesis 31 to see how God's presence plays out in Jacob's life. We're going to sort of break chapter 30 in half. We're going to look at Jacob's offspring in the first part of chapter 30. We're going to then look at uh, Jacob's working with Laban, Jacob's job, his, his prosperity, Uh, is what my Bible has that heading on in the second part of chapter 30. And then we're going to look at chapter 31 as a unit. Uh, Jacob leaves Laban and heads back to the promised land, the land of his fathers, the land of Canaan. So grab your Bibles. Let's go ahead and get started. We're going to start in Genesis 30. Uh, and we're going to just think about a little bit going into last week because this this, uh, this birth cycle with Jacob's wives really began in Genesis 29, 31. Uh, this time frame, these verses from Genesis 29, 31, up through the end of Genesis 30, verse 24, we're looking at seven years. This is after Jacob has gotten married to Rachel and Leah. So he did his first seven years of service to get Rachel. Surprise, he got Leah and Rachel. And now we're into that second seven-year time frame. So over this seven years, we have 12 named children that have been born to Jacob through uh, these two different wife teams. One of the teams was Leah and her servant Zilpah. This team produced eight sons and one daughter. The other team is Rachel and her servant Bilhah. And, and this team of women produced three sons. Uh, it's th- these, tw- these, th- we don't have all 12 of the tribes born yet. We will have one more that's going to be born in the land of, land of Canaan to Rachel, Benjamin. But these named people that we've learned about, whether, you know, Reuben and Gad, uh, and Levi and Simeon and Judah and all of these, these sons that, that Jacob has, become the 12 tribes of Israel. So if you hear the name and if you're thinking like, I recognize that, Judah, I feel like I should know that name. Levi, I should know that name. These these 12 children, these 12 male children, become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's name is going to be changed next week from Jacob to Israel. And so these are the people groups that, that we're going to hear a lot more about, not only through the rest of Genesis, but through much of the Old Testament. And remember that original audience that we've been focusing on. This is the, the Exodus community. They were organized by these tribes, the way that they would march and the way that they would you know move around the Ark of the Camp, around the Ark of the Covenant. All of that was done by tribes, and so this would have been something that was very interesting to uh, the people of Moses' day, but I definitely think that there's some aspects of this that we can look at uh, and learn from as well. So remember that God's promise to Abraham 
was that his offspring would become like the dust of the earth, like the stars of the sky. And to this point, we haven't had a whole lot of Abrahamic offspring in the promised line. Ishmael had children. Keturah had all these children. There were other children that happened, but really we're seeing an explosion of offspring that happened to Jacob. So this rapid increase in Jacob's family size is part of the fulfillment that God is doing to bring about Abraham's offspring being like the dust and the stars. Now, this is going to continue throughout the story of the Israelite community. This is a connection to sort of the Exodus uh, the fruitfulness of the nation of Israel at the beginning of the books of, of Exodus was 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 concerning to the Egyptians. And so the fruitfulness that begins with Jacob is going to continue even as this community is enslaved by the Egyptians. There was this, so much uh, children were being born. Pharaoh was like, we need to do something, throw them into the Nile. Uh, and so this fruitfulness was going to continue in the story of the nation of Israel. You know, there's three main characters in this tale. I realize that the that the, 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 the servants got pulled into this as well. But if we look at Leah, Rachel, and Jacob, they were really focused on the thing that God had not provided for them. Uh, let's let's look at some of those characters. So first of all, Leah, based upon the way that she names her children and sort of the discourses around that, Leah wanted emotional love from her husband. It wasn't wrong for her to want this, uh, but just throughout this, she keeps lamenting the fact that she is missing this emotional connection, this emotional love from Jacob. She's by far the more prolific of uh, the offspring teams, but yet all the children didn't seem to satisfy what she wanted, which was emotional love from Jacob. Rachel really seems to be most interested in having supremacy over her elder sister. We don't know much of Rachel and Leah's story, from before the time that Jacob was on the scene, but it seems like there was some sibling rivalry and, and, and Laban had not made the situation any better by having both Leah and Rachel be married to Jacob. But Rachel's desire is to be on top. She wants to be number one. She wants to be the number one wife, not only in emotional love, but also in offspring. And so she was loved by Jacob, but she definitely did not produce nearly as many children as Leah did. And I think at some level, Jacob was like, look, man, I just want a simple home life. You know, I, I just kind of wanted to have, you know, one wife and following the pattern of, of, of Adam and Eve. Uh, Jacob just wanted a simple relationship. He didn't want to have a lot of complications. And, uh, you know, that's not what happened. He, he ended up with a much more complicated family situation. But, but everybody was thinking about, you know, what is it that I don't have? That's what I really want. Now, certainly, as we look at these three characters throughout the first part of this chapter, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel all are acknowledging God's hand in this process, right? I mean, Leah cannot name a kid save for having something to do with the Lord, right? You know, you look at the names of her first four children. Uh, the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Uh, when, when Rachel is complaining to Jacob about not having any children, Jacob says, am I in the place of God? And even Rachel, when, when she finally does have her first son, she says that God has taken away my reproach. So these characters are all, are all acknowledging the role that God has in this process, but they're, they're not really seeing what God has provided for them. They're looking at what they don't have, and instead, 
they're 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 failing to see what God has done. The reality is is that God has provided offspring for both Leah and Rachel. We see this in twenty nine thirty one when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He opened her womb. And again, God remembered Rachel. This is verse 22, chapter 30. God remembered Rachel. God listened to her and opened her womb. Uh, Also, Leah and Rachel had been grafted in to God's special family, the family that came from Abraham. They are now a part of this covenantal family. Uh, Jacob also had received much from the Lord. When he left Bethel, he had basically said, Lord, give me bread to eat and clothes to wear. The reason his parents had sent him away was to find a a non-Canaanite wife, and he had not one, but two, and a whole bunch of kids. So all of them were not looking at the things that God had already provided and celebrating those things. One of the principles that I think we can learn from this section is that when God is present, God provides what he knows his people need, not what we want. But God provides what he knows his people need. Now, probably at some point in your life, you've either been asked or you've asked yourself if you're the kind of person that's a glass half empty or glass half full. The idea is that you're looking at a a half empty glass with maybe optimism and you're focusing on the liquid you have left and you're celebrating the liquid you have left, or perhaps you have pessimism and and you're lamenting the liquid that's gone from your glass. And I think the problem with with looking at the world this way is that we're we're choosing the size of the glass. We're choosing to decide how how big is the glass that I'm going to have to put liquid in. I'm going to have a big glass. And, and all the wants and all the desires of our hearts, you know, it makes that glass bigger. And so what do we end up with? Well, we end up with a glass that's half full. And that's what was happening with, with Leah and with Rachel and with Jacob. They were, they, were all, they were sizing their glass based upon what they wanted. And they were failing to think about the liquid that God had already provided, the drink that he had already given them. They were, they were lamenting the space in the glass rather than what God had already provided them. And my advice for the three of them is get a different size glass. If, if they were to size their glass down, if they were to right size the desires of their heart, the desires of, of their mind, and, and have it be more in line with what had God had provided, I think that there would have been less lament. There would have been less discord. There would have been less frustration in the family. Size the glass to be appropriate for what God has provided. You know, one of the things that we do when, when there's a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and it says, give us this day our daily bread. And part of the message of that is, Lord, help me to size my glass appropriately. Help me to have the, the things that I want and the things that I desire to be in line with what you're going to provide. Because there's a whole lot of stuff that I want that has absolutely nothing to do with seeing God's kingdom come and God's will be done in this world. There's probably things that you want that have nothing to do with that. And, but, but our glass is so big, we want other things to be in it, and we feel like we're missing something. We feel like we're lacking something. And so one of the things that we can do is to really pray that prayer and say to the Lord, Lord, give me this day my daily bread, size my glass to be appropriate to the blessings that you have already poured out. So a question for us to consider is, is like, how big is your glass? 
And, and what's the reason that your glass is the size that it's at? Are, are, are you wanting things? Are you wanting things in your life? Are you scaling your glass out to be bigger than it needs to be because of your desires? Are you failing to see and appreciate the things that God has already poured in, the blessings that he's already given? You know, and I think one of the problems is, is that when we have a big glass, we look over at somebody else's glass and we're like, dang, they got a lot of liquid in that glass. We can't celebrate what God's doing in someone else's life. Rachel and Leah couldn't celebrate what was happening in their sister's life. They couldn't celebrate the new life that God had brought about. Rachel couldn't celebrate Leah's children because she was so wrapped up on her own glass. And, and, and so size your glass. Ask God to help you size your glass appropriately. And, and it'll give you the ability to appreciate what God's given you And I think it'll also give us the ability to celebrate what God has given, what God is doing in somebody else's life. I think a fair question for all of us is what would it look like for us to really celebrate what God has already provided? How would how would this how would the first part of chapter thirty be different if if Rachel and Leah and Jacob were celebrating what God had done? There was some crazy in their history. Right? None of them probably wanted to be in the situation that they were in, but there was still reason to celebrate. There was still reason to look at what God was doing and say, God, thank you for giving me my daily bread. Well, let's go on to the next part of this chapter, Genesis 30, verses 25 through 43. Jacob has been a blessing to Laban, and Laban knows it. Laban, is, Laban has realized that, hey, this is a pretty sweet deal. And so at this point, at the end of, uh, at, really at Genesis 30, verse 25, this is the end of the 14 years that Jacob had agreed to serve Laban. Seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel. At the beginning of 25, that time is done. It coincides with Rachel's birth of Joseph. And Jacob went to Laban and said, I'm ready to go home. I'm ready to go back to my family. I'm ready to set out with my children, with my wives, and I'm ready to leave. And and Laban, um, let's also remember that there was a, well, let's just, let's look at Laban. Let's look at what Laban said. Uh, Laban had discovered through divination, and Jacob may have known this through observation, that Laban had been blessed because of Jacob. This is what Jacob says in verse 30. You had little before I came, The Lord has blessed you wherever I have turned. This ties us back to a promise that uh, God made to Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. The implication is that up to this point, Laban's interaction with Jacob had been that of blessing. Right? Jacob had experienced blessing at the hand of Laban. He'd been a part of Laban's family. Laban had provided both of his daughters. Uh, a little bit of deceit in there, but I think for the most part, we can say that Laban had experienced blessing because he had blessed Jacob. So at this point, Jacob is going to enter into a negotiation. He's already worked for Leah and Rachel. There needs to be a new wage that is set up if Jacob is going to to stay. And so Jacob proposes this idea of payment based upon the color of animals in the herd. There was supposed to be an initial payment, which would have been, I'm going to go through the herd and everything on the goat side that's speckled and spotted, those belong to Jacob. And on the lamb side, on the sheep side, any of the black lambs, those belonged to Jacob. 
Laban agrees. He's like, that's a great idea. Let's do that. However, Laban begins to dishonor Jacob. He begins to curse Jacob by immediately removing in secret the animals that should have become Jacob's. Laban felt that the best way to continue to have Jacob's blessings flow to him was to be deceptive. The only way that I can keep this guy around is through trickery. And so that's what Laban results to. Laban wanted the blessing of God, but he wasn't really interested in in continuing to to care for Jacob, to bless Jacob. He, he didn't really he wanted God's blessings, but he didn't want anything to do with God. He, he and and we'll and we'll see more about that later on with his household gods and things like that. Uh, Laban was was he wanted the blessing, he wanted the good things that came from having Jacob around, but he didn't want to have to make the commitment. And so Laban begins to treat. Jacob deceitfully. We'll learn more about the level of that deceit in chapter 31. The the wage changes, um, but uh, this is definitely Laban beginning to take advantage of his son-in-law, Jacob. One of the connections that we can make from this passage back to the events of the Exodus is that after Joseph had done great things, we'll read about this at the end of Genesis, Joseph did great things for the Egyptians, but over the course of time, the pharaohs forgot what the people of Israel had done, what Joseph had done, and the Egyptians began to mistreat the Israelites. And and we're seeing Laban follow a similar pattern where Laban is beginning to mistreat Jacob. Through the rest of this chapter, verses 37 to 43, we see a a, a commentary, a a description of what begins to happen with Jacob's flocks. Uh, Jacob's flocks grow not only in strength, but also in number, and Laban's flocks decrease. Now, as we look at this passage, we're going to ask ourselves the question of what is the root cause of Jacob's success? Is it his creative breeding processes with poplar wood and, and putting up the sticks Or is God at work? Is God at work bringing about blessing for Jacob at the expense of Laban? We know from later on in the passage that God definitely was working. Genesis 31, 13 tells us that God was involved in growing the flock of Jacob by providing either speckled or striped or black colored animals. So we know that God's been involved. We, we can think about the, the you know, were, was this good breeding practices? Was, was Jacob just showing good animal husbandry? You know, I don't know. I don't know if there's any connection between poplar sticks and breeding. But what we can know for certain is that God has been working to provide for Jacob's material needs. And we know that definitively from Genesis 13, 31. Um, the principle, uh, the, the other connection to the Exodus community is, is that as Israel left, the Egyptians, when they left for the Exodus, they plundered them just by really knocking on the door saying, hey, can you give me some goods for the trip? In the same way, we're seeing Jacob plunder Laban. He has both of his daughters. And over the course of this verse, the man increased greatly. He had large flocks and female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. God has been growing Jacob's uh, wealth. In the meantime, Laban has been losing wealth. The principle for this section is that when God is present, he knows about the people that we interact with. When God is present, he knows about the people that we interact with. I have a, a, a friend who I was talking to about dating one time. She said that she had several relationships that she ended 
after having a very specific dream. And sometimes she'd be, you know, in a new relationship with a guy, and one or two dates in, she would have this dream. And she knew that she had to end the relationship. She was just getting to know the person. She didn't know him very well. Maybe things were going great. Maybe they weren't. But when this happened, she interpreted this as God saying to her, this relationship is not right for you. This person is not right for you. Now, now she just got married. So at some point, God said, hey, this is the, you know, this is the one. Uh, But God knew. God knows the hearts of the people that we interact with. Uh, And God knew that in in, in my friend's life, these men that she was affiliating with might have been fine people, but they weren't the right people for her. God knew that Laban was a bit of a scoundrel. God knew that Laban did not have Jacob's best interests in mind. And, And God provided protection for Jacob uh, from Laban, not all of it, not ex- not at every situation, but we know that God was working on Jacob's behalf to protect him from the, uh, the, the the way that Laban wanted to enslave and trap him in the land of Padanaram. I think a question for you and for uh, for for is it me? I think it's me. The question the question for us to consider is how might God have been protecting you? In relationships that have ended, distance from family, distance from friends, friendships that have just fallen away, jobs that didn't work out, uh, applications to schools that went unnoticed, has, has, has possibly God known about the situation that you wanted to get into and he knew that it wasn't right. He knew that it wasn't good for you and so it either ended or didn't happen. I think a good question for us also to consider is how might God be providing for you in the midst of a challenging situation that you're in today? Jacob was in some challenging situations, and in that, God was still providing for Jacob. Perhaps he's doing the same for you in the situation that you find yourself in today. Let's move on to Genesis 31. Uh, Jacob is now going to leave Laban. Uh, This process that God had been going through of taking Laban's wealth and transferring it to Jacob did not go unnoticed. The sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And furthermore, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Uh, We see the Lord saying to Jacob in chapter 3, verse 3, chapter 31, return to the land of your fathers and your kindred and I will be with you. And so it is now time for Jacob to go. There's no more wage renegotiation that's going to happen. The time of him caring for Laban's animals is, is going to end very soon. We see a long conversation that Jacob has with his wives in 31 uh, verse 4 through 21. We get some insight into some of the, the ongoing problems that Jacob had had with Laban regard to wages. Laban was always changing Jacob's wages to try and limit the growth of his herds. Ten times, Jacob says, his wages were changed. Uh, Jacob also revealed that he had been a diligent worker. He had done his best to serve Laban and uh, pr- protect his flock. We also reveal, uh, God also reveals that he had provided some information, his protection of Jacob, 
Uh, Lift up your eyes, the Lord said, and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing for you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go from this land, return to the land of your kindred. So through this, this verse, we know that God has been the one who has been growing uh, Jacob's herd, not necessarily his herdsmanship. He might have been a great shepherd, a good herder, but the Lord was involved in growing that flock as well. Perhaps for the first times in their lives, Leah and Rachel are united with Jacob and with each other. They agree that, that it's time for them to go. They were, are basically have been regarded as foreigners by their father, and they've been united in this covenantal family that God has been bringing together. And so Jacob and his family leave without telling Laban, and further Laban was off shearing his sheep. And so they're out. They're going back to the land of Canaan. Now, uh, in, in verses 22 through 33, Laban finds out three days later that Jacob and his family have fled, and it seems like he's not happy. Now, it's hard to know what Laban's intent was, but for 10 days, he pursued Jacob, and he didn't go alone. He had some guys with him. So, whatever he was planning to do, God showed up in a dream the night before they caught up with Jacob and his family, and and, uh, God really checked Laban's intentions. God's words are a bit, you know, mystifying. He said to Laban, and this must have been significant to Laban, but he said, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So finally, uh, we, we, we have the, 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 catching, the catching up of, of Jacob by Laban. And there's a connection back to the Exodus. After the Israelites left the, the land of Egypt, the Egyptians pursued. The Egyptians got on the, they got out there. Uh, and ironically, the Israelites had a three-day head start before the Egyptians began to pursue uh, the, the Israelite community as they left. The, the, the main complaint that Laban seems to have with Jacob, one, his departure, but two, it was related to the household gods. Now, we know that Rachel took them. We, we get some information about how she took them, where she hid them, how she deceived her father, but we don't know why she took them. It's not clear if they were valuable. Perhaps she thought that they would be lucky. Uh, Perhaps she thought in some way this was her way of paying her father back. It's not clear what her motives are. It is clear that Jacob had no idea that Rachel took them. He basically pronounced a death sentence on any person that was found with them. Laban searched, never found it. And then we have Jacob responding uh, to this search and, and Laban's pursuit in verses 36 to 42. Jacob expresses his prolonged innocence and, and diligent labor on behalf of Laban and the flock. Uh, and he feels that, that this pursuit by Laban is yet another abuse of him at the hand of, of Laban. The, the way that this problem was going to be resolved was, was recommended by Laban in, in that they were going to cut a covenant. We've seen a couple other covenants that have happened uh, throughout the book of Genesis. God with Abraham, Abimelech with Isaac, Abimelech with Abraham. We've seen some covenants that have happened. This is another one. And the details of the covenant, chapter 31, verses 43 to the end of the chapter, Laban is of the opinion that everything that Jacob has belongs to him. The wives, the children, the flocks. But 
What they agree to do instead, rather than an exchange of goods, is that they decide they're going to come up with a covenant. Now, there's a couple of witnesses that they're going to have. Uh, Laban wants a pile of stones, and so they gather together a pile of stones. Jacob has a single stone pillar. This is his second single stone pillar. We could look at this as a contrast in the in the religion of the two men. We know that Jacob has is, is been pursuing a relationship with a, with a monotheistic god known as Yahweh. Laban had uh, household gods, and so he. They, it, it's possible that, that, that these stones represented the two different religious beliefs of, of the men, and they needed to have separate witnesses because, you know, Jacob was like, no, 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 your stones are not real. The pillar, the real God. Uh, but at any rate, they, they were going to, to have a covenant. The nature of the covenant seems to be some attempt by Laban to protect his daughters and his grandchildren from Jacob. Not, it's not really clear why he felt there was a need for this, but uh, that seems to be the overall idea. The Lord watched between you and me when we're out of one another's sights. If you oppress my daughters or take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is the witness between you and me. And again, the, the, the idea is that if you violate the covenant, you, you, you will end up being cut in half like the animals would be. Uh, Laban ultimately says goodbye to his children, to his daughters. He returns home. And the one long-term effect of this is that we've seen the land of Padanaram be, being a, a, a recurring location that's come up in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. And this is really the end of that. Uh, we're not going to see any of Jacob's children or offspring going back to Haran. They're not going back for Thanksgiving or any of those holidays. The The connection has really been severed between uh, the, the family in Mesopotamia and the family that's now present in the land of Canaan. The principle for this section is that when God is present, he provides direction. When God is present, he provides directions. You probably know that Google Maps and Waze can provide you with turn-by-turn directions from one place to another, and they certainly can be useful tools. Uh, You may know, like Waze has the ability that if you want to arrive someplace at a specific time, you can say, Waze, I want to arrive at this address at 7 o'clock, and Waze can alert you when it's time to leave the place that you're at now. Now, a GPS is going to help you navigate from point A to point B, but it's not going to help you to evaluate, maybe it's time to go back to school. Maybe it's time to change jobs. Maybe it's time to commit to a relationship, or perhaps it's time to walk away from a relationship. This is some of the direction that God provides for his people. It was time for Jacob to leave the land of Padanaram and go home. And this wasn't an easy road for Jacob to walk because he has to meet up with Esau. But how did Jacob know it was time to go? God revealed it to him. It wasn't ways, it was the Lord that let Jacob know that it was time for him to return to the land of Abraham and Isaac. So what's some of the direction that God has been providing to you? You know, God has different ways that he interacts with us. God's spirit is present with his people. Perhaps the spirit's been bringing up uh, a sense of, of, of ending or of change, or, or you feel like you're at a crossroads in your life. Sometimes we, we have these times of uneasiness where God is revealing to us that a change is coming, and, and our response should be to seek Him in prayer and say, Lord, help me to understand 
where you would have me go. Sometimes when that happens in our lives, and it's happened to me, I have a sense that God is giving me some directions, giving me some instruction, and I'm like, God, you're going to have to recalculate because I am not doing that. Uh, I am not doing that thing that you want me to do, Lord. I am going to just just keep going on the path that I'm on. I'm not interested in having this, this new thing that you're doing. Uh, we can definitely be tempted to ignore the directions that God gives us. Maybe, though, you can think back and think of some times when you have obeyed the Lord, gone to a new place, gone to a new job, gone to a new relationship, and you've experienced benefit and blessing by doing that. Back at the beginning, I talked about the easy button, uh, and I, you know, I kind of went on to say that there, there isn't really an easy button in in this life, and and, and you know, I think that that's true to some to some extent. Um, the, you know, the living a life that is shaped in the pattern of Abraham, uh, living a life that's shaped in the pattern of Jacob, living a life that's shaped in the pattern of Christ. There is going to be hardship. We, we've seen it in in the lives of the patriarchs. Uh, we've seen it throughout the New Testament. But we have to also keep in mind that Jesus told his disciples, uh, I believe it's in Matthew 12, I don't, I don't know the reference right here, but I have the verses, I'll read them to you. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, we have to keep in mind that the life that we live, as we live the, the life following the, the pattern that Christ has set, um, our limbs are going to get tired. Uh, our, our bodies are going to wear out. Uh, but the reality is, is that Jesus's presence in our lives through the Holy Spirit provides true rest for our souls. And the Bible also teaches that the experiences of this life are not the end. Death is not going to have the final word in the life of God's people. There is a future that God has for us, a future that Abraham saw from a distance, a city whose foundations and builder are God. And friends, that place is where we will experience true rest. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the, your promise of presence being with us today. And Lord, thank you that your presence is not going to be something that leaves us when this life ends, but we have an eternity to be with you. Lord, I pray that uh, as we go through this life, we might be feeling tired and fatigued and worn out. But Lord, I pray that we would begin to experience the rest that Jesus talks about. Lord, help us to experience rest in our souls. Help us to experience the easy yoke and the light burden uh, that Jesus has promised. Lord, help us to trust you when things seem a little crazy in our lives. Uh, And Lord, I pray that you would give us confidence that you do know what you're doing. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the St. Louis Young Adults BSF Podcast. Join us next time on Zoom on Monday, March 1st at 7 p.m. Central Time as we discuss Genesis chapters 32 and 33. To connect with our class, like us on Facebook at STLYABSF or visit bsfinternational.org slash class slash 793. Bible Study Fellowship is an international, interdenominational, nonprofit organization that is dedicated to studying God's Word one verse at a time and strengthening the local church. For more information, visit bsfinternational.org. That's bsfinternational.org.